Hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT Show. I'm John Drummond, and I'm your host for the next 60, I guarantee you, exciting minutes. You know, it's been another great day for British democracy. Nigel Farage's new party, called Reform UK, there's a, there's a challenge, has an M MSP at Holyrood. How did that happen? Her name is Michelle Ballantyne. There was no vote. There was no election. Ballantyne previously stood for leadership of the Scottish Tories. She simply swapped parties. Bingo. How's that for a constitutional obscenity? Read more about this in my Constitution column on Sunday in the Sunday National. Oh, by the way, in other news, a lot less whimsical, we now discover tonight that over 10,000 Londoners have died of COVID-19 and Boris Johnson is still in office. How is that for democracy? Thanks for joining us this evening. We have yet another great guest, and I'm really excited that she's able to be with us tonight. Tonight, the TNT show will welcome Kat Carey. Kat's an American who has served tours of duty in Afghanistan and Iraq. She is now a very keen supporter of Scottish independence. And we are taking your questions live. If you have something to say, if you have a question or a comment, Send it in. You'll see the details on the screen. Because remember, The Nation's Talks, TNT, The Nation's Talks, this is your show, right? You make it what it is. We supply the guests, but you can make the show really, really live with your comments and your questions. So send them in. Don't be shy. I've got my phone right here. You can write to me, john at cliche.com, the shortest email address you'll ever see in, in the long day's march, john at cliche.com. Let me know what you think. So now to our guest. Tonight, the nation talks to Kat Carey. Kat, how are you coping with the pandemic? I'm surviving. Um, homeschooling, we're on day three of our second round of homeschooling or home learning, and um, it's going okay so far. The, the school's done a really good job. Um, I'm hoping that it that it stays this way and that we keep coping with it. But you know, we're in survival mode like everybody else. It's sometimes I think I'm losing my mind, but I think <laughs> we're all there. So who's we? You say um, we're coping. Who's we? Um, my my partner Tyler and I moved here in 2016, and uh, we are homeschooling our kids who are Eli, age nine, and Carmen, age six. Terrific age. Super age. Great age. And an easy, I mean, I feel very fortunate that this is the age that they needed to be homeschooled because younger or older might have been a lot tougher. I, I think you're probably right there, you know. I speak to people whose kids are a little bit older, uh, and particularly kids who are a little bit younger, mm -hmm. and it's a real test and a, 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 and a trial. And my heart goes out to them. It really does because, you know, I, and also we, we really, really appreciate that what teachers bring to the party. Because <laughs> once you've homeschooled, it gives you a real insight into the challenges uh, that teachers face on a daily basis. So tell us, tell us about yourself. You, now, you're uh, what I think is colloquially known as a cheesehead. You're from Milwaukee, right, in Wisconsin. Yeah, tell I us about growing up in Milwaukee, your family, your friends, et cetera. I'm a very proud cheesehead. I was born and raised on a farm. Um, so I was right outside Milwaukee. The area where I lived was so neat because I was an hour away from Chicago. 
and I was 15 minutes away from downtown Milwaukee and there was good museums close by. And there was also really, really like world-class museums an hour away. So even though I got to grow up in the country and grow up on a farm um, and have that sort of childhood, I also didn't miss out on some of the city stuff that, that, um, that comes with it. I was, I was pretty sheltered. I, I grew up, was grew up Lutheran going to a Lutheran parochial school from kindergarten through 12th grade, like 50 kids in my graduating class. When I was in grade school, there's six people in my class. So I was I grew up kind of in a bubble. Sometimes I call it Amish adjacent because I did know, you know, there was Amish people right by my grandparents' house that we went shopping yeah. at their shop all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was raised in a fairly strict household. So yeah. when I was 19, I enlisted in the Navy and got out of there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, like I say, I mean, I, I lived in Rochester, Minnesota for a bit. And uh, and I, I I loved it. It was it was great, but it was cold. I mean, during the winter time, oh my, was it cold? Really, really cold. I mean, now when you know, people complain you know, about the cold here, I say mm, the dark bothers me in the winter. But I I've I've experienced the kind of cold that I don't wish on anyone. So yeah. I'll take the cold here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a very different cold. I, I used to welcome uh, people coming on assignment from Scotland to, to Rochester, Minnesota. And they always had the, the, the Scottish misconception about the weather, which is that if the sky is blue, it must be warm. Mm-hmm. If it isn't warm right now, it's sure to be warm. But what they didn't understand, and what everyone in Milwaukee and Minnesota and Wisconsin understands, is that you can have a blue sky in the wintertime, and it can kill you. It can truly kill you because you get 10 below, 20 below, and you get the wind chill factor. These folks will go out for a walk with their families. I mean, I rem- yeah, I remember school being canceled just because of the temperature, not because of snow or ice, but because it was so cold, your lungs would freeze when you took a yeah. breath in. So That's that what I find cool. scariest. You know, you, you, you feel good, you step outdoors, you take a breath, and all the warming has been replaced by a block of ice inside your lungs. I mean, it's just weird. How did that happen? How do I cope now? <laughs> it's out of this world. <laughs> I don't have a survival it. pack in the trunk of our car. Did you have that? Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you had to. If you had to have a first aid kit, you had to have just something. I mean, even in any beater that I had when I was young driving around, you had to have enough with you. Now, I didn't live very far away. And, you know, I didn't do a lot of long distance driving. My, my partner grew up in Wyoming. So he really had to have survival stuff because if you got stuck, it's like getting stuck out in, in the bush in Australia. There's just nothing there. But I, I really think that I grew up pretty poor. Like my parents flirted with the poverty line. So as a, we weren't poor. I, I hate saying poor because it's America. You know, you can only be so poor in America. But we did flirt with the lower middle class poverty line and we still had to have that. So that's how important it is. Yeah, yeah. It can be a tough environment, and particularly if you're away from the main centres where there's loads and loads of employment opportunities. I mean, I noticed that in Rochester, there was only two means, major means of employment. One was the Mayo Clinic, another was a huge IBM plant, and that was pretty much it. And that, plus the fact that every telephone directory was full of Johansons and Ericssons. <laughs> I am Norwegian and German and my descent, so I, I am completely the stereotype of Wisconsin. <laughs> in the upper midwest so you you grew up a a small family i take it there was you and how many other siblings 
I have three younger sisters, so fairly, fairly large for, you know, growing up in the time I grew up in. I mean, I'm the oldest of four girls. My parents had never, my parents had high school degrees. My mom did some college before she dropped out to have me. Um, she and my dad got married halfway through college for her, for through university. And she really wanted to be a mom. You know, that's kind of the way life was back then. So um, my sisters and I were the first ones to go to university in our family. Cool, cool. And your poor father was completely outnumbered. He was. <laughs> he deserved it, though. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you went through school, you went to university. Uh, at what point did you decide to join the service? Well, I, I went to, I started university and I had, you know, back then it wasn't quite as expensive as it is now in America, but it was still expensive. Um, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to major in because I've always had so many interests. So I enlisted in the military because they have a, what's called the GI Bill for college education. And I really, I wanted to travel. I wanted to, you know, there's something about being in the middle of all that land that I find a little bit suffocating. I'd rather be on an island. I don't know why. Some people are the opposite. But um, I really just wanted to get, I wanted to see the world. So I joined the Navy and I did see the world. So I didn't get my first degree until I was 29. I got an associate's degree. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what was it like being a woman in a, which I assume is a fairly patriarchal environment, the service. It is. And, you know, when I first enlisted and I, I'd tell people about it in town before I joined, they'd say, well, no offense, but I don't believe in women being in the military. So, you know, that was in 2001 or 2000. Um, I went to boot camp in January 2001. And then September 11th happened after I had joined. Um, there is a lot. There's a lot to deal with. Um, I sometimes look at the bright side. I There was no gender pay gap. I got paid the same. Um, there were regulations. I had to know what they were. Um, and it wasn't an easy life, but you could be pretty straight with people. And it really wasn't under the surface, any kind of harassment or um, unfair treatment uh, was out in the open. And you either complained about it or you just went on. I, I do know it was illegal to be, to tell somebody that being pregnant would ruin their career. And I was told that over and over again. And I was 10 years in the military before I got pregnant um, and started a family. I can only imagine what women went through that, you know, were yeah. young and, and, and fell pregnant right away. Um, so it was rough. It was rough, but there seems to be, I mean, people are people. And I was in a very male heavy job and sometimes male gossip and the way they do things, I feel like I'm used to it more, a little bit. Um, it's just- what was, it, what was your job in the service? Um, I was a flight engineer on P3s. So it was, I was a real grease monkey. So I was an electrician. Um, I did fly on, I flew around VIPs for two years in Bahrain on a, on a little King Air propeller plane. And then I went to, and that you don't make a career flying those. So I went to flight engineer school. My, my pilot said, you know what, you have a thick skin. I think you'd do well. So I guess that's what tells you the level of, I guess it's an expectation. Yeah. You have to have a thick skin. 
and there's a level of misogyny or sexism and yeah, it's hard to explain it, but you just get past it. It's out in the open. You call it out when you see it. This is my line. You don't cross it again and you just move on. And sometimes I miss that really straight up forwards (laughs) way of dealing with it. Could have been worse. You you could have been in the Navy. You could have been in a submarine. Can you imagine what that must be like? An airplane. We'd fly like 13 hour flights, but yeah, it wasn't a submarine. And, um, you know, I, I ended up doing a lot of jobs that had equal opportunity. Um, like I'd have to be there to make sure there wasn't any violations of like protected categories. I was a sexual assault victim advocate, which was tough. I, I, I find it hard to even call it rewarding, but I learned a lot from it. And it, it taught me a lot about humans and compassion and having empathy for people. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, sometimes I got volunteered for jobs that were not the easiest. Yeah. Well, you know, say what, as a philosopher said, the unexamined life is not worth leading. So there we go. See, uh, some questions coming in. James Reith is saying, asking, how do people in the US view Scotland's struggle for independence? Well, the first time I found out about the Scottish independence movement was the referendum. I had been, or we had been saving up money to move overseas um, because we knew we could get funding for a university. So I was finishing my bachelor's degree and we were saving money and we were selling our house so that our kids could go to school here and not where there was violence in, in America. So I guess that's my first, my first impression was, oh, I didn't know they were going to maybe be independent. I don't know. Like, I hope they get what they want and I hope that I can still move there. That was about it. And then once I got here, self-determination is a really big deal in America. And if you try and suppress that, a lot of people are going to have a problem with that. It's kind of ingrained in us. Also, like learning about the Revolutionary War, everybody learns about that. So the British state are kind of, you know, from little kids, we learn how unfair it is. And as I've lived here and I've seen it in action more and more, I see how little it's changed since the 1700s. And I just see that there's really, it's broken and it's never going to be fair to anyone, but the people in power and they're never going to be fair to anybody else. And, you know, I suppose Americans do feel like they're the underdogs. I'm not sure why, but they feel like we're going to stick up for the underdogs or we are the underdogs, even though, we're not, but uh, just kind of how Biden said, I'm Irish. I don't know how much of America is aware of the Scottish independence movement, but I, I suspect you'll get a lot of support, yeah. especially as, as open and international as Scotland needs to be. Yeah. I mean, the, the, for me, there's a lot of lessons that could uh, transpose across from 1776 to 21st century in Scotland, because some of the issues that uh, fired off the revolution in the United States are somewhat akin to what is happening here. Uh, I mean, so many Americans who were always loyal to the crown um, got more and more upset about the rather autocratic behaviour of the of of the, the 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 government in London. And, and first of all, sought to ameliorate the effects of that. You know, it's it's a process. You can see it in history. It wasn't just the United States. 
it's pretty much everywhere where there's a ch- there's a group of people who say, well, the guys there just don't understand what they're doing. I know it, I know it's bad, but it's bad because they don't understand. And then eventually you get to a point where you you begin to realize it's not that they don't understand, it's that they don't care. <laughs> and then you're faced with a quandary because if your whole approach was to say, how do I somehow convince these folks of the justice of, of what I feel as opposed to what in, in response to what they're doing, it, it suddenly becomes invalid because you realize there is no place for you to make that plea. There is no space. There's no platform. And I guess there was a great example of that today in the House of Commons, where Ian Blackford was trying to make some point. And frankly, the, the prime minister treated it as if it was froth. I mean, it was, who cares what you think? Um, and I'm not sure, yeah, well, I, I, there, is, there is no sense of involvement or inclusion that I'm able to see, which is going to make it very difficult to argue for a middle way between the status quo and independence, which I guess, again, is similar to what happened in the US. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sincerely hope that it's not um, violent and it doesn't take as many years as it took the U.S. to get independence. You know, I think that um, we're the route that Scotland is taking is somewhat unsatisfying sometimes to try and build a case and get international support. It's so boring, right? It's just we want to do something and we're all locked down. But I've been to war. And I've seen what it does to people. And I'm an immigrant here. I, I won't be able to live here if there's violence here. I grew up with hearing about the troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, and I really think that the way that the, um, the Scottish government's going about it right now, while deeply unsatisfying on a personal level, I think it'll be quicker in the end, honestly. Nobody condones violence and nobody's suggesting that. No, no, no. I know you didn't. I'm just saying the American Revolution was violent. Yeah, yeah. I ought to have prefaced it by saying, uh, let's hope it doesn't end up the same sort of way in order to get to a resolution. But I'll say that now. But you're right. The the process just now, in the eyes of many people in the US community, seems to be intolerably slow. It's pedantic. There's one tiny baby step after another. And I to some degree, I can understand why people feel frustrated. I totally feel that frustration. I do. Yeah. I cried when I heard that IndyRef was being put on hold at the beginning of the pandemic because I knew that it was getting shelled for this long. I didn't really know that other people wouldn't realize what putting it on pause back in March meant. Um, yeah. So I get frustrated a little bit of like, you know, you have to govern everyone and not everyone wants independence. So that's, that's the problem with being in government as the independence party is they're in a really tough spot. I think that's the point I was trying to, the parallel I was trying to draw with the United States it wasn't about so much about the, the necessity to resort to violence because I agree with you completely. Uh, it's, a, it's a failure if that happens. Uh, but rather the, the fact that the, the United States at the beginning of the revolution was roughly split a third, a third, a third. You know, and it, and, it, and what clinches things is when the group in the middle move towards being, as they would say in the states, patriots, uh, as opposed to loyalists. I don't know uh, if I'll use that word anymore, honestly, after last week. But yes, <laughs> <laughs> good. That's a lovely segue. Tell us what you feel about last week. The only thing I can compare it to, as far as how much it impacted me and how devastating it was is September 11th. 
it's not an overestimation because, and some people, I've heard some people compare it to Pearl Harbor, which I wasn't alive for, but um, I was alive for September 11th. I lived through it, but that was an outside enemy that we could take device, a decisive action against afterward. Yeah. And even though I was in the military and I was pretty scared <laughs> about what was going to happen, um, you know, it was a time of deep shock. And how did this happen? And I was fairly young, you know, as a teenager still. But um, even though the events at the Capitol, they weren't unexpected, but how it transpired and the lengths that they were able to get inside the Capitol. And that was really what hit me just to get inside the Capitol and to do that and to carry around a Confederate flag inside the Capitol Rotunda, just it's the very definition of terrorism because it outweighs the violence. Tell people watching and listening why that should be the case. The, the presence of a Confederate flag inside the Capitol building should be so offensive. Well, the, the Confederate flag, as, as, it's, as it is in its current form that's common, wasn't, wasn't actually used by the Confederate forces. Um, I think it was used once or by one general. But that symbol was resurrected in the in the Jim Crow era, and it yeah. was a symbol of, of being a support of a segregation and of white supremacy. Yeah. And so even though most states have taken that off their flags, they've taken it down in the Capitol, and it's been a really, really long time to fight for racial equality. And obviously, we're not there yet to see the symbol of white supremacy. I mean, if they were wearing a KKK hood, it would be the same. That's yeah. that's the thing I can equate it with. Um, yeah. So there's kind of a twofold. Do you want to start a civil war? And also, wow, we got a lot of white supremacists in America. Yeah. Why? I mean, <laughs> I apologize in advance for this question. Mm. But I think some people are unclear the way some Americans are unclear about Scotland. Some folks here are unclear about the United States. So I apologize for what sounds like a very naive question. but. Why is America so riven between the followers of Trump and the, everyone else's, it seems to me? But why is that? Well, I, I don't think that you can classify all support, all Republicans as supporters of Trump um, mm. because there's only two parties. A lot of people, I mean, I have not gone to a single election without holding my nose for at least one of the candidates. Uh, Joe Biden was not my number one pick, but I do support him. And I was, I knew that he was the guy who was necessary right now, even though he's not my ideological political match, you know? Um, so with just two parties to choose from, there's less expectation of that being your guy or your gal or really, really identifying with them. Um, so a lot of the Trump voters were single issue voters. A lot of them uh, see, abortion is murder and anti-abortion, um, that, that whole, it's not a, it's not about pro-choice or pro-life. It is a strict anti-abortion patriarchal thing that they've captured and they've kind of whipped up frenzy about it since I was a kid. So a lot of the, his voters are like that. There are some people who don't believe the media because of Fox News or, or MSNBC, you know, if people only listen to one news source. They're going to hear what the confirmation of what they want to hear. 
I guess. And, and a lot of the people that are like in the legislature that are Trump's people are opportunists, you know? Mm-hmm. Did I answer your question? I'm not sure. Yeah, it, it, it is. And it's a big, big picture that you have to try and paint. But the reason I ask you to do it is because one of the issues that's almost universal now is what happened to the media in the United States a decade or so ago when the regulations changed, which allowed Fox News and uh, all the other stuff that we see uh, um, consistently, uh, has happened here to a degree. Um, you know, we, we, we will shortly see with uh, Andrew Newell's outfit and others, more of a right-wing agenda being consistently portrayed, I suspect. And we, we've also had, no disrespect to anyone here, but the fact of the matter is that we have a public sector broadcaster in which the chairman is a conservative voter, uh, supporter, and a, a financial supporter, as is the director general. Now, it's hard in these circumstances to argue that that entity is, is unbiased. It may well be, but it gives the appearance of not being so, which I think is just as unhelpful as the actuality. Would you agree? Um. I, I would agree. I mean, it took me a really long time to wrap my head around this because there is PBS and NPR in America that is state funded, sort of, but it, it is factual and it is rigidly, rigidly neutral, no matter oh. who's in power. Whereas I find that the system here is more set up for whoever's in power gets to use that as their mouthpiece. Yeah, And no matter how many times you say each issue gets equal time, you can frame that issue however you want. I don't typically listen or watch very much BBC, but I read it. I read a lot of their BBC articles because it's factually very correct. And then you look at the framing and you look at what they don't say and you look at where they put the data together um, to make themselves look better. They had that chart up with the COVID deaths and one was 700 and one was 30,000. So that's what I look at when I when I look at the news, but I do try my best to look at different sources. I don't look at Breitbart. I don't look at the far right wing stuff. I, I can't stomach it myself, but I do try to look for factual news. And I'm one of those people. I mean, I study politics. And before that, I studied psychology. I'm very much of my own mind. So I don't like listening to political analysis before I've made my own opinions. So I like to yeah. look at factual stuff first. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at your kids, what sort of world do you want for them? A fair, greener world. Part of why we moved here um, was because of the way they had active shooter drills for five-year-olds in kindergarten, where they're hiding under desks and traumatized. Um, And my son started P1 here. And I look at that as a great achievement in my life um, to be able to move to another country because I don't have the money that a lot of people do. We're fine, but um, it took a lot. I'll never own a home, you know, kind of thing. But I'm totally okay with that because the primary school, the education here is so good. I hope that they'll get citizenship here and and be able to go to university. Part of why we moved here is to be EU citizens. And I hope, I hope that we'll get that chance to be European citizens again someday. Um, And I just, to put it simply, I don't want them to be assholes. Yeah. I can't really control the world that they live in. And we all go through our own crises in our generations. 
but yeah. I want them to be equipped to deal with it and to be yeah. kind to others in reaction to tough times and not turn on others. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's very creditable. John McLaughlin is saying, well, we'll come to John McLaughlin in a second. Morag in Edinburgh is saying, you're very welcome here, Kat, as a new Scot. Have you any plans for a political career? Define political career, because I, I, I switched from studying psychology to politics because I wanted to study policy. I'm really more of a researcher kind of person than a politician. I've never really, I, I'm the women's officer for my branch. But I really, other than that, in student council, I'm not, that's not really my forte. I mean, I'm, I'm better at reading things and analyzing them and trying to show accurate data or poking holes in the things that aren't accurate. So yeah. I'm not sure. But I was raised with a really strong sense of civic duty, and I can't say that I'd turn it down if I was needed somewhere, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I'm retired. I am retired. And I'm on my second career, third, if you count motherhood. So when you yeah. talk about what do I want out of life, I want to live here. Yeah. I want to be able to provide for my kids. And I want to have a job that I can go to bed at night saying, you know, I want to be able to look at myself in the mirror and sleep at night. Yeah. These are very Midwestern values. <laughs> they are. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I my grandpa's an FDR Democrat, and he taught me everything <laughs> I know about civic responsibility. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure a lot of people here understand how deeply ingrained these values are in many parts of the states because they see, as we all do on television, sometimes a very different view of the United States. They see the Capitol riots, they see a president who appears to be trying to instigate some sort of coup. And they say to themselves, gracious, what's all that about? I, I always tell people a president is not a prime minister. And thank goodness for that. Because Boris Johnson has far more sweeping powers than, than Trump has. And like Macron in France, the presidency there, they, he has many more powers. Where America was designed to not be the UK. Yeah. And the Constitution was designed, look at what they did that's unfair. Let's try to make sure they can't do that again. So, I mean, Trump has really, really stretched the Constitution to its limit, but they're, they're impeaching him tonight. They're impeaching yeah. him as we speak, and they had to do it. I'm a little, I was watching it before, and I, I'm trying to, trying to keep my blood pressure down about it um, with some of the people saying, we need to heal. Like, well, you were the law and order, throw the book at them, people. So let's be fair. Let's hold people accountable, um, and let's move on. Yeah. America really has almost like bumpers or buffers to self-correct itself, the centrism, which isn't always the best thing, but it avoids these wide, wild swings to the left and right. So um, Trump was a wild swing into populism, not, not even necessarily right-wing populism, but populism. Um, yeah. He doesn't really have an ideology, um, but he just tapped into anger. And I think a lot of that is going to be reckoned with in the next few years. Yeah. Marco Zani is asking, with Trump gone, is Roe versus Wade safe? Well, Trump really doesn't have much to do with Roe versus Wade, and it is being attacked in different states, different state legislatures. They have been chipping away at it. This has been a project that's been going on since I was a kid. And if it gets taken out by the Supreme Court, this is my hope, my deepest hope. And because of the election 
case is not taken up by the Supreme Court. I really do think that this may pan out this way. Conservative judges don't want to change laws from the bench. They do not want to legislate from the bench. And that is part of American conservatism, yeah. is that the law, the, the legislature legislates, judges determine if it's constitutional or not. I can't see America coming forward with a constitutional amendment. So Roe versus Wade isn't going to be safe, but I don't see it being repealed or reversed. For the benefit of those watching and listening who don't know what Roe versus Wade did, it was about the abortion issue. Another question from Gemma McLaughlin. Gemma wants to know, how would you put the need for independence to Scottish unionists who are under the misapprehension that we are better in the union? So I have a friend that struggle. He falls on the unionist side of things, but he he kind of goes back and forth, and he really, really challenges me with this. And he goes, "Well, why doesn't the north of England? They're not treated fairly. Why doesn't the north of England get independence?" I'm like, "They should, if yeah. they can vote for it and get their things together. We have a parliament. You know, it just to me it seems like the ability to." The more local you get with government, the more effective it is and the more accountable, never mind how fair the system is. So if it's an unfair system that's closer to home, you have a much better chance of remedying it. I just, it's really hard because the thing that really turns him away, my my friend from the independence movement, is worry that his family down in England that aren't going to be okay. And a lot of people are turned off by the, not, I, I can't say a lot, um, but there are some people turned off by the more intense portions of the independence movement. But I, I think that, you know, there's all different types of unionists and there's all different types of independent supporters. And yeah. some of the unionists aren't really worth my time trying to convince. <laughs> and yeah. the ones that are worth convincing, I just, I say what I've said here democratic self-determination. I don't see what your argument is against the democratic will of the people. Like, how can you say no to that? Um, I listened to a podcast that they really started to talk about. It's about politics and it's out of Cambridge. And they really started to talk about Scottish independence. And really the only plan Westminster has is delay, delay, delay until eventually they have to give it up. They have to do it. So it's just, I'm more calm about it because Otherwise, I'll get too frustrated because I know that it takes patience more than anything else to do this. And most people I meet admit to me that they used to be unionists. I don't meet a ton. I mean, this is the year of being inside. <laughs> yeah, my, my friend that you said, you know, North of England should should be independent. Like maybe they should. Maybe this isn't working for anybody. I, I really haven't found any arguments when I say, well, what's your argument for the union? And they really don't have an answer, and I don't really have to argue. Well, when I talk to conservative commentators, and I always like the chance to talk to folks outside the constitutional silos, because I feel it's terribly important, because I feel if you're not inclusive, you lose a lot. You lose a lot. And they they say to me, well, the view amongst unionists, uh, the the unionist hierarchy, is is that uh, they have no strategy. Their, Their position is entirely emotional. Their arguments are emotional, i.e. you shouldn't do this because of this problem and that problem. And when I put it to them, that's a losing strategy, i.e. that if your arguments are based only on emotion, you will lose. 
history suggests that time and time again. I did think of one thing that I, I go to again and again with the unionists is that that we would be better friends and we would be better partners as separate nations and as yeah. allied nations, because right now we're just constantly set against yeah. each other. And the, the necessity of having safe injection sites in Dundee and Glasgow, and it's a devolved matter to be vetoed by Westminster for what? All we are is statistics to them. Look, we're better than Scotland. You know, they're keeping us from doing what we need to do to keep population healthy. And it's not a hard argument to make that the, the Scottish government, whoever's in government, you know, I, I mean, the whole yeah. parliament does care about its people quite a bit more than you can say about Westminster. That may be down to closeness. You know, I mean, it's a small country and the population that's probably smaller than Wisconsin. Uh, so you do get to know people around the place. You get to know who the main players are and, uh, and stuff like that. It's harder to hide away when you're trying to duck the consequences of your decisions. And that seems to be, as you said earlier, a perfectly healthy thing to do. Here's a comment from Sherry Fowler-Bird. She says, as an American, I would love to be there in a minute, but I don't meet the British immigration income guidelines. I'm glad she got to go, at least I'll hope for more lenient guidelines in an independent Scotland. I have enough to support myself, but I'm not wealthy. There's a creed occur. If it weren't for the GI Bill from being in the military and me having a military pension, I would not have met the requirements either. It really was just kind of the star of the line for us to be able to move here. Um, yeah. And I do, I recognize how expensive it is. The visa fees are just astronomical and, and the home office is not easy to deal with. But yeah, hopefully in an independent Scotland, things will be better. But um, going to university here is it was our route to okay. getting here. Tell people a little bit about the GI Bill. How does it work? What is it? It's a little bit, when I signed up, it was the, the Vietnam GI Bill, but now it's the post 9-11 GI Bill, which it, it transferred into that where it's three years of tuition and a small stipend for rent and food or whatever. Um, if you go in, a, in the US, if you go to an expensive university, they'll give you the rest of the money for all your tuition. But here they don't, they don't overseas, but uh, you get your program approved if, if it's not already approved. And as long as it's a legitimate program and I'm doing a master's degree, my husband did a master's degree as well. Um, it's just, you're, I, I basically look at it as that's my job, but it's, it's a stipend, which depends on where you live, about how much you get. And really, that wouldn't have been enough for us to live on here. But since I, I have a pension and my partner also has, he's a disabled veteran as well. So he gets a small amount of disability every month. And, and that's enough. I mean, Edinburgh is an expensive city, but we used to live in Hawaii. So it's not that expensive to us. It, it's really expensive for rent, but you can live yeah. pretty cheaply after rent. Now, a unionist has written in with, with a, a suggestion for you. Huh. MJ is saying, try this cat for an argument for unionism. What some call independence is to me and many others, the tearing asunder of my country. What would you call Brexit? Well, the, the, the unionist argument that I heard espoused recently or enunciated recently was Brexit has been a complete shambles. 
the Prime Minister is an utter buffoon. And that's why we shouldn't go for independence. <laughs> well, what I would like to see in an independent Scotland is helping England stay in the single market or get freedom of movement back uh, and have that open border and have a relationship more like Ireland, not the, uh, the rifts of old with Ireland, but to have a partnership. I would yeah. like to see the SNP work with Labour to get proportional representation so that it's more fair in the rest of the union. I mean, obviously, that's not our decision to make, but that is the path that I see that would help. And I don't see it as I mean, I grew up near Canada where you could go over the border with your driver's license being in a separate country. I mean, they, they are separate countries. I don't see yeah. how you're less of you depending on how you're governed. If you're being governed more fairly, I find it very hard to argue with the self-identity, feel-goodness of it if it's going to do real harm to others. Yeah. Yeah, MJ has updated her question or his question. I'm no Brexiteer. <laughs> so I would say that, you know, so how you felt with Brexit, I don't think that that would be the same thing. I think it would be more of a negotiation and a partnership. Like I said, I, I think that there are real problems with how the British government governs the English people and the Welsh people and the Northern Irish people. And I think that it really, what else will shake up the system and, and make the real no, the reforms that are necessary, how, what would instigate that? What would kick that off besides Scottish independence? Yeah, I mean, I take your point. I, I can't come up with anything else that's peaceful that yeah. would kick off something that would help all of us. And I, I wouldn't want to think of, I don't speak for English people. I was in England once uh, on the drive up here and I haven't been back. So I don't really know the experience of living in England so yeah. I have a hard time seeing it as much of a difference. Yeah. Let me task you on something then. Some people might say, to use an American, uh, say here, Kat, these people want to secede. Look what happened to the United States when part of the United States chose to secede. Doesn't that give you pause? No. Not at all. If somebody says that, they do not understand the context in which they're speaking. Um, this, the secession in the South was because they did not want to meet the standards of human rights that the entire country legitimately, democratically had set forth. And they said, we're just going to go. And that's it. I can't put myself back into that time. I just rewatched it, a really great documentary on General Grant. I mean, I recommend it. I think it's on Sky. It's amazing. Um, but a lot of it was about human rights issues. Yeah. And I just think that you're comparing apples and oranges. It's really not. When you make that comparison, if you make it to an American that knows anything about the situation here, they'll be like, that is not the same. Yeah. Yeah. I, I said I was going to tax you on it. I didn't, I wasn't hugely serious, as you might imagine. You can understand why people attempted to go down this route. If your only arguments against independence are emotional, then people will seek to pull the emotional levers, which is about, we you know, we're losing the country, people are seceding, uh, what gives one group of people the right to secede and not others, who chooses who can succeed, secede, all this sort of stuff. I hear a lot that the United States is, they're unionists because it's the United States, it's the union. Yep. And 
it's it's not that way. It is more that if a state, say Texas, legislative for voted for and said, hey, we're gonna secede and we got all our we, you know, democratically decided this, let's negotiate. I don't see a problem with that. The thing is the civil war wasn't that. I, I come at independence from a very not an unemotional place at all, but I don't have any emotions to the British state. You know, yeah. I love Scotland because that's where I live. Here's another unfair question. <laughs> Since we're in the mode of unfair questions, this is it. James Reith. I'm calling it unfair. This is not because James is describing it. So do you think the Democrats, more so Biden, would be sympathetic to an independent Scotland versus Westminster? Why? I think, well, Biden is pretty savvy when it comes to international relations, but you also have to think about Congress also, you know, and when we talk about support for like Ireland, it's not a it's not a Democrat thing or a Biden yeah. thing. Republicans are are very much emotionally attached to Ireland. And although Scotland isn't Ireland um, and there's maybe the hit, there's more people in Canada that are, are Scottish. It it translates and it translates into people being treated unfairly and not liking it. You know, um, so I yeah. do think that we need to make sure that as an independent, as we make our case for independence and as we go to negotiate with these other countries, that we keep every option open and available because we don't want to be a satellite state of America or Russia or China or anywhere. We don't want to be beholden to one country. And I, I do think that. Biden has an extreme, he really is for multilateralism and, and fairness. Yeah. I think he's a great president to have while we can do the indie ref. Right. So, but he wasn't your first choice though. No, I'm more to the left. I'm more socially liberal. I'm more, I'm more of a, in America, they, they think I'm a communist because I'm a, you know, a pretty much a democratic socialist because they believe in taking care of people when bad things happen to them because it's not always their fault. So you're so, a Bernie person. Bernie or Warren. Bernie yeah. and Warren. I yeah. support both of them very much. Okay. I'll tell you my experience in uh, Minnesota. I was having my hair cut in, in a, a barber's shop in Rochester. And the guy who was cutting my hair said, when he heard my accent, he said, where are you from? I said, uh, Scotland, because you have to pronounce the A. Is it not? Yeah. I, I'm from Scotland. And he said, uh, Scotland, is that near Sweden? I said, well, because he's in Minnesota. Sweden is the old country. And uh, I said, well, it's, it's sort of close. He says, they got communism there. I said, well, actually, they call it socialism. Well, same thing. <laughs> you know, Wisconsin is where McCarthy came from. He I was know. a senator from Wisconsin, and that has left deep scars. That and the Cold War has left deep scars in America. Where um, the fear, the socialism is a boogeyman um, of state control, and it's it's changing. I mean, I'm kind of I'm an elder millennial. I don't think Gen Zs care about those labels. I don't think they're frightened by Bernie or Warren, you know, so I, I do think, but Biden has really, he's always been to the middle of the democratic party. He hasn't been like a centrist centrist like Pelosi and he yeah. has shown a huge capacity to move to the left and to do what he thinks would be fair. And I think the S and P could take 
a lot of lessons from the Democrats and from Biden in particular of how they've dealt with party conflicts. Because if we go down the labor route, we're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that uh, reading Obama's book, and he talks about Biden a lot, which is fascinating because a lot of vice presidents are just there to make up the numbers, as you know. Obama seemed to have regarded Biden very differently. He regarded him as a valuable member of the team, consulted with him, uh, took advice from him, changed decisions because of his input, which, you know, that didn't happen for all vice presidents, for sure. No, <laughs> and, uh, so it probably equipped Biden better to deal with the environment he's now in because he was very close to the decision-making and decision-taking process. Oh, and even before, he has so much experience in government. You know, he, yeah. I don't think anybody has more experience than he does. <laughs> and he isn't afraid to stick up. I mean, for a man who's gone through so much personal trauma, he really knows how to be kind to people. And he really knows how to tell who is being picked on unfairly. And he's not afraid to stand up for those people, even if it's not the most popular thing. Yeah. What about, uh, you know, you look at Biden and you think of his age. You have to think about his age. Mm-hmm. How old is he? Almost 80 yeah. or 80 something. I don't, I don't know his exact age. See? I don't think about it that much. I, I don't want to well, think about that. Yeah. Well, I'm closer to his age than, than you are. So therefore, I look at his vice president. Because you have to. Come on. You have to be realistic here. Yeah. Well, you always have to. Exactly. So what, what do you think of vice, the vice president? Um, I think she also wasn't my first choice for his pick. But after he made that choice, I saw more and more reason why it was probably the best choice he could have made. She's newer in the government. You know, she she was elected to the Senate not long ago. You know, she was a one term senator, more like Obama, kind of. Also, to be very, very crude and blunt about it, because she is a woman who is black and is Indian, South Asian descent, it is very, very hard for people to pick on her without sound, without their racism and their bigotry really being apparent, if that makes sense. It would be easier, even though Warren would have been, Warren was never going to be his vice president. I, yeah. I knew that. But um, so if Warren could be picked on as a white woman and go, well, it's just that I don't like her. Um, yeah. But Kamala Harris is very hard to pinned down. And she also has shown a great capacity to move with the will of the people. And that's something that they, that is different in American politics than politics here is that it may be not so much in Scotland, but the whole don't do a U-turn in British politics. Like, well, if the people think differently, why wouldn't you change your opinion? You know, what is the same right now that was 20 years ago? You have to evolve and adapt your opinions to what the best information you're given. So she has always, where Biden's been in the middle of that, of like, where's public opinion? She has always been further on the liberal left side of it, but she's not Bernie or Warren pushing, pushing. And that's, that's where I live is the pushing further to the left from inside. But it is instructive, isn't it? That the U S was able, despite Trump, maybe because of Trump to elect a 70, almost 80 year old, and a, a, a black woman as part of the package. It says a lot. It, it's, it's eloquent about the attitudes that drive 
a large number of the voters? Yeah, I think I think a lot of I, I sometimes groan at all the credit that's given all the time to the people allowing the women into power, but it really is true because unless people will elect you or select you, and a lot of times for women, it's the selection process that ham hamstrings them. It's you know saying all of you have the same qualifications. We're going to pick the white guy, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And and that's it's a safe choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It works a lot of the time. Okay, um, we, we, we've dealt a lot with the state, sorry, uh, and we, we've almost run out of time. We've only got four minutes to go. So I would like to ask you, what's your vision of Scotland? As you look down the pike, say a year, two years from now, describe the country you see. So I hope to see a very federalized, decentralized government in Scotland that isn't ruled by Edinburgh or Glasgow, but really has better infrastructure and better support and better representation in the highlands and islands and all the areas, because I don't think that it's possible. I mean, I've never lived in the highlands. I've been up there plenty of times and I, I know that they, I enjoy services here that they don't have there. I see more public infrastructure. I see a greener Scotland. I see an independent Scotland that's in the EU or in the trade union with freedom of movement back. And I see us a real leader on the world stage. I see us up there in the big leagues. I see us being part of the Arctic Council. You know, I see us being part of the Nordic Alliance. I see us really, really respecting human rights and pushing the envelope for other countries. Yeah. Do you think that Scotland should establish an office in Washington, D.C.? Um, I don't I don't know. That's a little bit out of my wheelhouse. I, I honestly like well, are you talking about how they have a house in Brussels? Well, like there's I, Scotland House in Brussels. I'm just picking up on your point that the Irish community is fairly well understood in Congress. That's been my experience over the years. If you say you're Irish or Irish descent, there's a lot of votes tied up in that. <laughs> it's not insignificant. It really isn't. Uh, and if you can say you're Italian and Irish, then, hey, you've got, you've, you've got a decent start. But it, it seems to me that's based on the fact that, that the Irish government is in regular contact with its U.S. counterpart. I think it's more of a cultural thing that's yeah. been there my whole life. Uh, and I used, I mean, I grew up next to Chicago, so very Irish place. <laughs> um, but I do think that in America, like you you know, it's not like you hold on to your culture, like you're different from anybody, but it's, it is that melting pot where you celebrate each other yeah. and everybody's Irish on St. Patty's day and stuff I like know. that. Maybe we need to have a Burns night. Maybe we need to have Burns feasts in that's America. It. Maybe. That's what we need. That's what we need. Well, Kat, we need to wrap it up now because we've just, we're just about out of time. I need to say a big thank you to you. Uh, I really appreciate it. And also a big thank you to everyone watching tonight. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion. I hope there's been some, Topics there, which though they may have sounded American perhaps, have a real purchase here in Scotland because lots of countries have traveled the route towards independence in all sorts of different ways. And I think we can learn a lot from uh, what has happened elsewhere. Uh, we're back next week with uh, childhood campaigner Sue Palmer. You don't really want to miss this. One of Sue's thoughts is that children here should start school a bit later, not five, not six, maybe seven. So if you've got questions about that, do let us know. Well, by the way, look out for the Constitution column in the Sunday National. I'm writing about possibly a big split coming up amongst the unionist groups 
in Scotland, particularly related to the Reformed UK Party and the Alliance for Unity. And how many votes will those siphon off from the traditional Scottish Tory vote? Uh, and of course, very importantly, use the What's On guide to find out what's on an Indie Live. Uh, don't miss out. I mean, we're right in the middle of a lockdown. Nobody likes a lockdown. But Indie Life has so many offerings. It would be a crying shame not to take advantage of it. And you can find out what they are. Go to www.whatsonguide.scot. You'll find it all there and much more. And thanks again for joining us. And join us next Wednesday. Oh, and by the way, again, it's been a great day for British democracy. We found out that the fisheries minister, no less, confesses that she did not read the Brexit deal. In fact, she was busy organizing an activity play at the time. So there you are. A big thank you to Kat. Thank you, everyone. Take care.